It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. If you've been listening to the news, chances are you've heard about it incessantly. Contact tracing is becoming an increasingly important step to reopen the U.S. safely. And we know, of course, testing and tracing are so key when it comes to containing the spread of COVID-19. We often hear that contact tracing is one of the keys to slowing the spread of COVID-19. But what is contact tracing exactly, and what are the surveillance and privacy implications surrounding it? Will yet another app that tracks your movements really be the key to ending the pandemic? Today, we got Motherboard reporter Lorenzo Franceschi Bicirai on the show to tell you everything you need to know about contact tracing. I'm Ben Maku, recording Cyber from my kitchen. Record. Okay, we're on. Hello, Lorenzo. Um Hi, Ben. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm in my apartment again. How, how'd you guess? Oh, that's new. That's new. <laughs> it's really new. Well, you know, I've been thinking about this. I think a lot of people have been thinking about this. And you've hear, you're hearing a lot about it. Contact tracing. I mean, my, my initial thought was, I have an idea what this is, but really, like, what the fuck is contact tracing? And more importantly, you know, we, we, we focus on cybersecurity and surveillance issues. And this clearly is something that is going to shape surveillance issues going forward. So obviously you're the right guy to bring on to talk about it because you're a paranoid as well. But just to start things off, you know, what is contact tracing vis-a-vis using it in a surveillance cybersecurity aspect? Contact tracing is the hot new topic. You know, it's this, um, it seems like it's this magical uh, phrase that uh, a lot of, um, tech companies and people, you know, techno-utopians, I would say, are sort of trotting out as a, like the solution to all our problems, you know, the way that we can reopen society, the way that we can stop the next uh, wave of coronavirus infection. Um, And I think there's a lot of um, skepticism and on one side and a lot of optimism on the other side. So I think it's important to break down exactly what it is. And um, what's the state of it right now? And what it is, is essentially, you know, a technique to, or a process actually. It's it's basically a process uh, in which you talk to a person that is has been infected with coronavirus, you know, COVID-19, and then ask them who they've been in contact with uh, in the last few days and sort of try to figure out uh, how many people could have been exposed to this infected person? And then you go and literally trace them, contact them, isolate them. And, you know, this is the ideal. It, the goal is to be able to uh, slow down the spread. So to isolate people that have been in contact with other infected people. Uh, so to, in a way to stop them to, you know, get other people infected. And until today, um, in other pandemics and epidemics, it's been done in a very manual, old-fashioned way. So literally, you know, doctors and uh, investigators, uh, health public health investigators would talk to the, the patient and just ask them, where have you been? Where do you live? Where do you work? Uh, you know, have you been traveling lately? 
and then they manually trace their contacts. Right. So it's essentially, you know, it's it, the way it's been presented is in some way, whether it's going to be state mandated or it's going to be Google and Apple sort of quietly doing it in the background of your apps, you'll download an app and you'll have it on. You'll be running it throughout the day. And you could, let's say, come into contact with someone or within a few feet of someone on a subway or at a store or in your workplace or at somebody, you know, quite personally. And then you'll be contacted and said, you've got to ice, you've got to now self-isolate for two weeks and get tested because you come into contact with someone mm -hmm. who has a po positive test. Yeah, precisely. So for this pandemic, uh, people are proposing this, you know, technology, technological solution because the argument is the basic argument is we all have phones now. We can make this at scale. We can take a, you know, the traditional old fashioned contact tracing process Uh, to scale using apps uh, that we install on our phones, which pretty much everyone on the world, everyone in the world uses and has in their pockets at all times. So that is the idea, and in theory, I think it's very tempting to see that as a solution because it sounds like it's uh, it would be a very easy thing to implement. You know, oh, it's just another app on the phone. You know, mm -hmm. think about all the apps that you already you know register your location or. Uh, send uh, your personal details to various companies. You know, at a, to a certain extent, uh, a lot of people have accepted this as normal. In um, you know, in these days, uh, e even though we've had a lot of uh, you know privacy scandals in the past, like you know Cambridge Analytica, the NSA leaks. That phone in your pocket right now might be a government spying device, according to a stunning article from the Guardian newspaper in the UK. The story says a top secret court order is forcing Verizon to turn over all phone records for calls made in the U.S. to the National Security Agency. The Justice Department and the FBI are reportedly investigating Cambridge Analytica, the political data firm at the center of Facebook's privacy scandal. The New York Times reports prosecutors questioned potential witnesses in recent weeks, telling them there is an open investigation into Cambridge Analytica, which worked on President Trump's 2016 campaign. According to the Times, the investigation appears to focus on the company's financial dealings, as well as how it acquired and used personal data pulled from Facebook. Even the, even those haven't really scared us from downloading, you know, Facebook or Google Maps on our phones. So the argument that proponents of of this of contact of you know app based contact tracing is basically, well, you know, you already do it for other other apps. Why not for this? But the problem is that, you know, first of all, it's never been done before. You know, manual contact tracing is much different than uh, app based contact tracing. Uh, you know, in terms of privacy, you know, in manual contact tracing, you you speak to a, a real person. You know, there's a there's a level of uh, confidentiality there that it's much uh, more tangible than with an app that you don't understand how it works and it runs on your phone all the times. And also, even from a healthcare perspective, we don't really know if this is going to work because it's never been done before. For the simple reason that it's never been done before. You know, we've never used an app like this before. So it's this kind of like we're in a paradox, you know, like in theory, this can work and it sounds really good because if everyone uses it, then you automate a lot, uh, you automate the process a lot. You don't need like, you know, uh, hundreds of people going around the city uh, tracing uh, people that have been infected. But but yeah, we don't until we implement it, we're not going to know if it's going to work.
Well, and a lot of people have a, have, uh, have some skepticism about this because one of the things that keeps coming up is bug issues, you know, whether or not phones react well to it, whether your phone, people use different phones throughout the day. There's so many variables that sort of just point to this probably not working quite well. But, you know, you at the same time have some of the biggest American corporations in the world looking to solve this issue like Google and Apple. I mean, could they actually create something you think that is useful or that could work? Or is this essentially just, you know, an, an avoidance of employing thousands of contact tracers like China has effectively to stop the virus and not just, a, you know, assuming some sort of gadgetry is going to work? Yeah, I think this is the key discussion that we need to have right now because even before talking about the privacy issues, which are obviously very important. I think that the first question that we need to answer is, does this even work? Like, do we even have the technology right now, today, in, you know, mid-2020 to make this work? And the answer is not as easy as, as you might think. Because one thing is to, you know, one thing is to track someone on the highway with Google Maps to give you directions. And one thing is to uh, pinpoint someone in a city and be able to tell whether they you know, they were like six feet uh, from someone who was, was infected. And that's like actually pretty precise. Like you need a level of accuracy that is just pretty hard. So if you think about all the ways that you can uh, geolocate a cell phone, uh, for example, you know, first GPS is very bad for location accuracy. I think it goes uh, in the best conditions. GPS is accurate to uh, around five meters or 16 feet. So absolutely not accurate enough to tell whether you've been close enough to a, you know, a person with coronavirus. Um, also remember that GPS um, is uh, highly dependent on the weather, uh, whether you're surrounded by tall buildings. So in places like Manhattan, it just doesn't work very well. Oh, I mean, like it's like going uh, into other, going into the city is a nightmare if you're trying to use your Google yeah. Maps. <laughs> like. Yeah, 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 exactly. Think so about you, you end up you, you end up like six blocks Maps. where you're not supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Think all the times you turn on Google Maps and your blue dot is somewhere else. Uh, cell phone cell phone tower location is even worse because it's completely it's so inaccurate. Like I think it's uh, the official according to the FCC, cell phone tower triangulation is accurate to like three quarters of a square mile, so around one kilometer. So it's insanely like vague, like it, this is definitely not the solution. So the the only thing that remains is Bluetooth, which is designed for, uh, you know, uh, clo close range to transmit data close range. You know, think about your AirPods or Bluetooth enabled headphones. So in theory, that is ideal because um, it's pretty accurate in um, in short ranges and at short distances. But there are a lot of caveats with Bluetooth. Um, the biggest one is that there are so many devices in um, in a city that use Bluetooth that are not cell phones. You know, we're talking about like some cities use uh, Bluetooth to uh, track um, traffic lights, whether they're working or not. Uh, some some companies have developed uh, Bluetooth-enabled uh, trash cans. Which is just so dystopic. Um Shops use Bluetooth to track uh, shoppers. There's so much noise in Bluetooth, you know, like, and it's not just phones. It can be printers in an office. It can be, you know, headphones. 
So you really need to write an app and uh, and a a technology that is very good at filtering out all this noise. You know, we also have a modern example, now a breaking news example of contact tracing being implemented. And it's by a country uh, in the, the, the Middle Eastern Gulf, Qatar. We've broken stories in this, this government in the past. They're not exactly the most human rights respecting group in the world. And they've implemented this new contact tracing system. And what can you tell me about it? Yeah, this was news fresh from today. Um, Researchers at Amnesty International analyzed the official and mandatory, so the the Qatar government has made it uh, mandatory for citizens to use this app, and Amnesty International downloaded it and analyzed it, and they found that it was pretty badly implemented. So they're not using the Google-Apple framework, which we we can talk about later. Uh, So they did their own system, and essentially the system gives uh, a unique ID to every user, every citizen, that it's based on their national ID card, which, you know, as a as a little tangent, uh, you know, does not even exist in the U.S., so that's that's another issue. But, yeah, the, this ID is based on uh, the national ID card, um, their date of birth, so it's relatively easy to guess. So the, um, the Amnesty International researchers found that they were able to just, uh, you know, they wrote a script to iterate and guess um, IDs, ID numbers, and they were able to like automatically download um, all information from users, including their home location, uh, whether they've registered as positive or negative to COVID-19, and other very personal data that was just sitting in a server uh, waiting for someone to download it with the right script. So, you know, to me, this is like the nightmare scenario. You know, you could not make an app in a worse way. Well, I mean, the other thing too is, can we even avoid this? Like, is it, is it possible to create something like that? That's also, that is, that is effective. Yeah. The good news is that in theory, you can avoid something like that. I mean, this is why Google and Apple have been so proactive in um, sort of anticipating the problem. Uh, I think around a a month ago, Google and Apple came out with a joint press release announcing that they were both working together on a on an API so essentially like a layer beneath the app that uh, health authorities around the world could use uh, to program these contact tracing apps and the reason why this is uh, important is that uh, first of all Google and Apple are not developing the apps themselves so that uh, already should uh, you know appease some concerns that you know Google is going to spy on everyone uh, because they're not actually going to collect data and they're not even developing the apps. So the idea is that you know the US CDC or whoever is responsible for this or the UK NHS, you know the National Health Service uh, authorities like that would uh, take this API and implement it in their own apps that they develop independently. And this API is actually pretty well designed from a privacy perspective because it gives um the way it works is that uh, if you install the app on the phone and, the, and this app runs on this API, your phone constantly checks around it for other phones um, in the vicinity. And it registers all the phones that you come across on your walk to the grocery store, say. Um, and then at the end of the day, if um, you know it checks with a, with a server to see if any of these IDs have been uh, registered as um, uh, you know, positive to COVID-19, and in that case, it gives you an alert. 
And then the the key thing here for in terms of privacy is that your phone never has one unique ID. Like there's always the the ID rotates constantly. And there's a sort of complex cryptographic algorithm that ensures that it's essentially it's almost impossible for someone um you know like the authorities to actually figure out uh, who you are at all times unless mm. you you test positive or unless you you know you you've you've been flagged as someone who who has been exposed um so in theory this is good um but again it has never been done um we don't know how good it is in terms of accuracy um and filtering out bluetooth noise uh, also, some governments have already announced that they're not going to do this uh, because they want more control. They want a central server, which the Google and Apple model doesn't have. Uh, so it's going to be a, just a mis- mis- mishmash of implementations. And uh, I don't know if like uh, Google and Apple are going to win. I think eventually they will because you kind of have to go with them because uh, everyone has either an Apple phone or a Google phone. But, um, but yeah, we'll see. Yep. I mean, it does seem like it's just uh, this whole contact tracing using an app is just leading towards us having to admit that we all want a facial recognition, you know, nightmare, big brother, everything is wired in type of state of affairs in order for us to stop this, this awful pandemic to get back to like how we were before. And I wonder about that sometimes is that is this just sort of the, the next step towards this AI facial recognition state that China has built for itself, for example. China has the largest video surveillance network in the world and plans to expand it to more than 600 million cameras over the next two years. With the rise in facial recognition and artificial intelligence, it feels more like someone is watching all those cameras at all times. And we know that Russia is trying to do and whether or not yeah, that's I mean, going to come here because of this. Because it does sound like this app tracing, it's just going to be ineffective and there needs to be more data for them to pull from. And then, of course, it's going to be actually tracing people's faces and locations. Yeah, the risk is there, especially if you don't use, if health authorities choose not to use the Google Apple model. So, for example, the, the Qatar app that wasn't using Google and Apple's framework uh, in that case, um, given that everyone has a unique ID, you can, in theory, if you're a government, you, you would be able to track every your movements or the, the person's movements throughout the city during the entire day. So it becomes essentially like, you know, the the old seeing eye of uh, at the end of the dark night, you know, when mm-hmm. Batman turns on all the phones and turns them into tracking devices. And, you know, like, yeah, you know, maybe some people in some countries will be okay with that, as lo- you know, as long as the government's promise that it's only for you know, for this moment in time. But, you know, as we talked about many, many times, it just doesn't work that way, right? Like when when governments turn on the surveillance faucet, it's very hard for them to turn it off because they find out that it's very useful for many things that are not, that it wasn't originally designed for. So I think that there's just a lot of, most privacy experts are really scared of this possibility and and again, this comes as, you know, the worst thing of all, of all this is that we don't even know if it's going to be useful. We don't even know if this is really what we need. So I think at this point, you know, if today I wouldn't really recommend anyone to use these apps because we just don't have enough data to know that they're really useful. 
authorities have been pretty bad at telling us exactly what these apps are even going to collect, how are they going to work. You know, given all these problems, the privacy trade-offs are just too too high. I agree with you completely, and we'll see how this this goes. But it just just another another example of governments and corporations using overly simplified apps in order to just address a more expensive and more ethical problem that could be solved by a, a bunch of human beings doing it in real life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, and I think that you know to. I guess if you want to be a little bit more understanding with the authorities here, I think, you know, from a psychological standpoint, it's it's very tempting to think that like an app will solve everything. And we've been trained by Silicon Valley in the last 20 years to to believe that technology is always the answer. But, you know, maybe sometimes technology is not the answer. You know, maybe there is a middle middle ground here, like a hybrid between manual contact tracing and some some tech-based solution. But I think it's, I don't know, it's, it's almost too good to be true to, to think that like, you know, all you need is the right app to solve this problem. Unfortunately, it's going to be much, much more complicated than that, I'm afraid. I agree. Well, I'll have you back on soon, I'm sure. <laughs> I hope so. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Ben. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Jason. Hi, Ben. Hello, hello. How are you? Another another week. Good, man. Weather's been good. Been biking around. I'm Story's buying a bike. Been good. I'm buying a bike. Huh? I'm going to be buying a yeah? bike. Yeah, I think in the next couple Wh- days. Where are you getting it from? There's a local shop that looks to be open. Yeah, the bike shops are open. We did an article about it. Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go buy one because I like. There's no way you're buying one online. It's like impossible. I bought one on Craigslist like two months ago. But, two months uh, ago. Yeah, it was probably shouldn't have done it, but I did it and uh, I'm here to to tell the tale. Yeah, I think I'm just going to straight up go into the shop like a like the like the before times and purchase a vehicle. Yeah. OK. Yeah, be good. Uh, OK, so this one is kind of like this is emotional for me even because I interviewed Phineas Fisher once the acclaimed hacker who appeared on my television show as a as a green uh, green little man basically a, a kind of like a, a Kermit the Frog type thing sock puppet a sock puppet well it wasn't a sock puppet it was like a pretty pretty elaborate puppet it was it was a pretty elaborate puppet but anyways it was because they they had a apparently hacked hacking team this world famous nefarious cyber mercenary type organization that it was, you know, human rights abusing, not good, bad people. Lorenzo Franceschi Bicherai, our man, has been like one of the top reporters on it. 
And he reported yesterday because he got a message from the founding father of hacking team that it's done. David Vincenzi, I believe his name is. Vincenzente. Vincent, yes. I can't say it. You can though, <laughs> as, a, as a South Italian. Exactly. But yeah, that's, I mean, this uh, is pretty huge. Yeah. So hacking team has been uh, not much of a player these last few years after it got hacked. Like you said, like, you know, I think they lost a lot of their contracts once they got hacked so bad that all of their business had been uh, put th- put out there on the internet. And Lorenzo combed through it because he's one of the few American English speaking hacking reporters who also speaks Italian, speaks Italian better than he speaks English is, uh, is what I hear. Although he speaks English. Great. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, they had been sort of like a corpse, like a walking corpse for a few years. Uh, you know, I think that they tried to rebrand a couple times and then they ultimately kept going under the hacking team name but I think they lost like both their ability to do good hacks. Like I think they lost a lot of their zero days and their exploits like got patched out and they were unable to find new ones. And then they lost all of their clients or many of their yeah. clients. So and then they just, yeah, I mean, they finally admitted defeat. They kicked the bucket. It's been, uh, it's been a nice run for hacking team, but, uh, but it's time, time to end. Goodbye. Goodbye, hacking team. Bye, hacking team. Put a stamp on it. But I mean, I it. think that their, uh, like, their hackers have obviously, yeah, their hackers have, like, moved on to other places. Um, you know, I think we've had a few articles in the last few years about some of them moving to uh, to various other firms, many of which, like, don't have names that people know because they've tried to keep everything, like, underground or under wraps. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, the people who were at hacking team are done hacking. Like that's probably not the case, but like the company and the entity itself seems to be done. Yeah. And I mean, and there's also like a weird saga where Saudi Arabia invested in, in hacking team. Yeah. Like, but there's also like, you know, there's new ones that have taken its place. Like NSO group that I've to me, to be honest with you, it's got a better name. Hacking team is just so sus and thirsty. I mean, they had, I, I just, that's, that's the thing that people will always remember about hacking team is their marketing. Yeah. Their marketing. Their name. And their logo and the fact that like they had, you know, literally a, a hacker and a hoodie in a dark room as their logo. Yeah, I mean, like it's, their, it was literally it's a it's you a know, kin, they made this like really ridiculous YouTube video. It's literally akin to like Lockheed Martin, Lockheed Market, call it Lockheed Market, Lockheed Martin calling itself murder death machine. <laughs> it just doesn't like. <laughs> Mi- missile creators yeah, mi- missile creator murders team drone drone company <laughs> yeah like it's just not <laughs> stupid yeah anyway so uh good riddance i guess um this story yeah, is another well. this one is is a it's kind of a collab it's a collab between a few of you well yeah we rushed to get it out man because we we heard the uh we saw a tweet about it and then we kind of like hopped on it as fast as possible because it had been floating around for a little while amazon but- Yeah, so Amazon created a video package, um, like a press release type thing, but like it went way beyond a press release uh, in which they wrote a script and created like a like a produced news segment or a segment that looked like news that uh, basically like went inside an Amazon fulfillment center and then interviewed people who work at Amazon fulfillment centers about how seriously they're taking coronavirus. And then they sent this out to local news stations and many of them ran it verbatim. So it's like you have 
I think it was like at least 11 different local news, TV news stations around the country ran this uh, essentially propaganda made by Amazon, uh, using Amazon's footage, using Amazon's PR person who like was posing as a reporter uh, and also reading their script verbatim. And it's really like dystopian and creepy, the, the effect. I mean, I think we can play some of the, the clips here. To deliver essentials like groceries and cleaning products during the COVID-19 outbreak. For the first time, we're getting a glimpse inside Amazon's fulfillment centers to see just how the company is keeping its employees safe and healthy while still delivering packages to our doorsteps. Todd Walker takes us inside. Flying on Amazon to deliver essentials for the first time, we're getting a glimpse inside Amazon's fulfillment centers to see how the company is keeping employees safe and healthy while still delivering packages to your door. Todd Walker takes us inside. It's employees safe and healthy while still delivering packages to your doorstep. Todd Walker takes us inside. Millions of Americans staying at home are relying on Amazon to deliver essentials. For the first time, we're getting a glimpse inside fulfillment centers to see how the company is keeping employees safe. Yeah, and it really, it really kind of reminded me of, remember John Oliver's piece on local news and how it was being sort of co-opted by some, some, some pretty scary conservative power brokers and how like yeah, so, multiple- Yeah, so John Oliver and both, uh, and Deadspin back in the day, did uh, this this package on, I guess, I think they were called like must run segments. Um, so basically there's a company called Sinclair Media that's yeah. owned by like a conservative billionaire uh, that owns a ton of local news stations. And from corporate, they create these like conservative leaning news segments and then they force these local stations to run it. Um, and so like a couple years ago, there was a package put together by Deadspin and, and a separate one by John Oliver, where it was like robots all reading the exact same thing, like in, you know, dozens of different markets around the country. So yeah, it's kind of the same effect here. Although Amazon says it like didn't pay any of these, uh, stations to run their footage and, but it just sent out like what they're calling a press release, but I've never seen anything like this before. Like local news is hurting. You know, COVID has made it kind of hard to go out and report uh, in certain places. So it's like, I think what probably happened is people are like, well, we've got nothing to run on the news tonight because we can't send people out or, or like our resources have been diminished or whatever. Like, we're just going to run this shit that Amazon sent us. And it's bad because like, yeah, it's, it's, uh... it's, it's like a very pro Amazon um, segment. And at, at the same time, it's like more than a dozen people have died. Amazon workers have died, uh, you know, because they got COVID at work. And it's like Amazon, you know, has done some things to to protect their workers, but not enough. And they were way too slow to act. And it's like, you know, they've been one of the companies that has benefited the most from this pandemic because their sales have gone through the roof. And at the same time, like they recently, like they've been firing people, um, who have dissented, they've been uh, like clamping down on organized labor. Like it's, we've talked about this stuff ad nauseum, but it's like Amazon has not handled this very well and they, they haven't really treated their workers all that well. And here is a segment that says that everything is great at Amazon fulfillment centers. And it, of course it's not. Yes, yes. It's just, yeah, it's yet more evidence of Amazon being quite the uh, evil empire these days. Yeah, I mean, 
it's every every week it's a new thing with Amazon. So I, I look forward to to seeing what next next week holds for us. <laughs> okay, so this one's another amazing American uh, new tech magnet. Elon Musk, like I can't, I, I can't with this guy. I really this happened can't. happened on Friday. Like this news story broke on Friday. Yeah. I, week. And like, I felt like I basically left my body when I saw it. Like I, I was unable to parse it. It like, it really felt like I went to another dimension. Yeah. It, it was so weird. It really does hurt me to hear that. A, well, Tulsa, Oklahoma created a, a giant statue of Elon Musk. It's like, not even that it's like, so back in 1966, I'm, I'm reading on the Wikipedia page now, um, the Tulsa state fair, like built this 75 foot tall, uh, statue of an oil worker because there's a lot of oil in Oklahoma and it's called the golden driller statue. And it's like, they did this to honor, you know, the people who work on oil rigs, which, you know fossil fuel is very bad but the people who like work on oil rigs like they have a tough job like this was a, a you know they're not bad people um and so this was like a, a huge statue one of the biggest in the united states the sixth tallest statue in the entire united states uh and it's this giant golden statue of a dude leaning on an oil well and like, I guess Elon Musk got into a beef with the city of California uh, because they wouldn't let him open his factory uh, during COVID. And so Oklahoma was like, well, why don't we ask Elon Musk to move Tesla's headquarters to, to Tulsa? And so this group of people, like uh, just local citizens, Tesla enthusiasts called Tulsa for Tesla, like retrofitted the golden driller statue, like painted a giant T on the on his chest like painted his face lighter and said that it, it was now elon musk and so there's just like a 75 foot tall statue of elon musk in tulsa now and it's like it's so bizarre the statue is so bad like it it, it is like it kind of reminds me of like the cristiano ronaldo uh statue that was unveiled of him and everyone was like holy fuck that's bad that's a really good i didn't even think of that but the one that my mind went to is like Remember that painting of Jesus that went ultra viral a few years ago? Yeah. Like, yeah, it looks like that where this uh, this woman tried to like um, renovate a, a painting of Jesus and did a very, very bad job to the point that it went like ultra viral and is now like internet history. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the Cristiano Ronaldo statue is is really great as well. Yeah, I also just like, I, I generally don't want to hear about Elon Musk, but I particularly don't want to hear about him uh, right now and he just never stops like he never seems to shut the fuck up in the last well actually well, just this entire pandemic or just inserting himself it's it kind of reminds me of the time where he accused that guy of being a pedophile and like sent a stupid <laughs> submarine to these the thai police trying to get them out of the those kids out of the cave it's yeah, like i, I mean, don't want so you right much, now so you're not helping man talk about yeah um so Interesting we're talking about Elon, though, because in a couple hours, like from when we're recording this, SpaceX is supposed to launch humans to the International Space Station. And this is something that's been like in the works for over a decade. Like it's that's uh, happening today. It's supposed to happen today. And so like by the time this goes up, it will the launch will either have been canceled or it will have been successful or God forbid, you know, it's not successful. Um, 
but it's like a huge day for Elon Musk and for uh, huh. SpaceX. It's like the, it's by far the most important launch they've ever done. And so I mean, he's uh, by far I the mean, most important edge lord there ever was. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I like SpaceX as a company. So it's like, I mean, I, and obviously I'm rooting for like, you know, America to get back to launching astronauts to the International Space Station. It's just interesting that like he's been basically shitposting and like beefing with local authorities. Meanwhile, his company, the other company that yeah. uh, he claims to care about more than anything in the world has been preparing to send humans into space. Like it's, it's didn't crazy. He, didn't he like just have a kid with Grimes? Yeah. Yeah. With the weird name. Yep. You know, I knew Grimes back in Montreal. I did not know that. Weird fact. Tell me more about it someday. Someday. Yeah. All right. Let's bounce. Yeah. I'll bounce. Yeah. I mean, let's, I mean, I will say hopefully that launch goes well. I really do hope it goes well. Yeah. Yeah. It will. I have, I hope that it will, of course. Um, so by the time you're listening to this, you will already know what happens, but anyways, thank you for listening. We'll see you later. Bye. See you next week. Goodbye. This week's episode was recorded and voiced by me, Ben Maku, and edited by Ricardo Contreras. You'll be hearing from us next week, and everybody, wear a mask. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.